to borrow Professor Greenwald's uh, words, you want to look for things that are ugly, that are cheap, that are boring, out of fashion, that are small and obscure. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Welcome to the IBKR Podcast. I'm your host here, Guillaume Rochabert from Interactive Brokers Singapore, and I'm joined with Mary Nakmanara from Interactive Brokers US. Value is the keyword today, so you will hear a lot about it during this session titled, How Does Value Investing Strategy for Commoditized Sector Works? Our guest star today is Stefano Grasso. He's a senior portfolio manager for Enhanced Value Fund who has over 20 years of value trading experience. So, Stefano, let's have a crack at this fascinating topic with the first question for you. Could you tell us more about your love story with value investing and what do you value in value investing strategies? Absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me. I started investing uh, about 25 years ago. Uh, it was uh, uh, the dot-com kind of era, so it was a good timing. Uh, but my love story, if you want, for, with uh, value investing uh, started in 2008. Uh, I was uh, studying my MBA at Columbia Business School, and I got introduced to value investing by uh, Professor Bruce Greenwald. I remember uh, we, uh, he gave us uh, an assignment uh, about uh, a stock pick that we were supposed to uh, pitch uh, the following week. And I've been working uh, uh, quite hard on that. Unfortunately, the night before uh, we were due to uh, the class for review the assignments, uh, there was, I think, a soccer match or a big uh, event, and uh, we were uh, uh, parting until very late. So I show up at, in class for the, uh, the following day quite tired and uh, with a headache. Uh, and the last uh, seats uh, that was available was uh, uh, in front of the class. So Professor Greenwald uh, uh, started uh, inquiring about uh, the uh, assignment, and uh, he asked explicitly about uh, this company that four or five of us picked, which was uh, Dillard's, the US retailer. And apparently there was not many people. Uh, there were like five people who picked this case. And he started asking like, who wanna talk about this stock? And uh, he started probing the group to kind of raise their hands. So I felt like being in the front seat, I raised my hands and I had like uh, this, uh, uh, conversa this 15 minutes conversation where he hammered me about all the flaws that I've done in my analysis of this retailer, why their you know, real estate portfolio was overvalued and so forth. So I got uh, my first uh, baptism with the value investing in a very uh, crash course in front of 150 or so uh, other classmates that witnessed my being educated about this, uh, this uh, stock. Anyway, it was a fun experience and uh, I got hooked uh, by value investing. It made uh, much, uh, so much sense to me. I mean, buying assets which trade at discount to intrinsic value when the market is mispricing them, for me made a lot of sense versus what I was, uh, have been hearing, uh, you know, since then. 
After that, I went to several Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings where I met and interacted with Warren Buffett, so uh, was great. And every few years, I uh, actually email when we don't meet in person at the, in New York at, at the campus with uh, Professor Greenwald. At the time of my pitch, the stock was trading below $5 per share. I, was, I just checked uh, before this podcast. It's now trading $300 plus. So it's like a 60 times return. I always make fun uh, of our conversation with him. I mean, this is kind of return that not even Chamat Paliaptia uh, kind of have in the VC world. So it was, uh, was quite fun. Excellent. And in the 60 times return is, is quite exceptional. And indeed, our common understanding about value investing is like it works like a savvy shopper in front of a merchandise store who would pick the best suit uh, on sale. So with the same fundamentals approach, portfolio manager like you could detect an underpriced financial instrument, which over time will blossom and shine into the market. However, this approach usually applies to wonderful business as per your mentor, uh, Warren Buffett's values investing philosophy is. So do you believe we don't necessarily need to wait for a wonderful business to apply the value investing strategy? I mean, the, I, ideally, uh, you know, you get a great business uh, at uh, a fair price that you feel comfortable uh, uh, buying into. Uh, however, great businesses at fair price don't come don't come by that easily. So you have really uh, two options: uh, either you park your money and and wait. By the way, today with five percent interest rates, it's not as terrible as it as it was like a year ago or so. But you have to wait for potentially a long time. You know, during the last, uh, you know, from 2010 to 2020, you know, you you didn't have big opportunities of buying great business at, at reasonable price. That's why many value investors underperform. So the alternative is to find a special situation or few special situations that have a good risk reward profile. Now, this opportunity is not easily captured by the Berkshire Hathaway or the likes. I mean, for big funds with multi-billions position, it's not easy to you know, build and unwind uh, a position uh, in a short uh, time. So they are really constraining, really pulling the trigger when they see something they can buy a lot of is a big market cap target and they can uh, move the needle. So they t- tend to buy and hold. However, if you manage it, say smaller money, say less than 100 million USD, uh, like we do at Enhanced Value Fund or like some retail uh, investor kind of normal portfolio, you don't have to worry uh, about the size of the position. Many, you know, uh, position you can get in and out without really moving the market and within a day, really. So this is an advantage that uh, kind of nimble players have. The other uh, advantage is that the universe of opportunities is much bigger because we can look at, you know, sub billion market cap companies and still build sizable position, whereby again for big funds would be too illiquid to trade in and out. So I think the the value investing approach evolved over time and many people relate to Warren Buffett. But as he says multiple times during the interviews and the annual letter, he's very much constrained to what he can do. So 
we are more flexible and we can look at other stuff as well. So among the other stuff as well, and uh, maybe among the least expected sector for value investing are the highly commoditized sectors. And in your view, could you name a few of these highly commoditized uh, sectors and give an example on how you would use value investing there? Absolutely. The, the traditional definition of commodity is a basic good used to used in commerce that is uh, inter-exchangeable with other goods uh, of the same type. Traditional examples are oil, where I have a background with any. I've been 10 years trading oil and oil products and gas, uh, but can also be you know, grain, gold, beef, uh, all these kind of soft and hard commodities. But I think for the benefit of your question, it's important also to acknowledge and recognize that there are many more goods and services that are commoditized, so to speak. So think of, you know, telecom, you know, if you buy a SIM card when you travel to Vietnam or whatever, you don't really care if it is a brand name or not. You go for the cheaper option, right? Commercial airline, when you buy a ticket, some people are picky, but majority of the people are just driven by price, right? Uh, even micro microchips, I mean, is an industry that is, to a large extent, commoditized. Logistics is a big, uh, you can think of, uh, you know, shipping, containers. These are business that tends to be highly cyclical and to be little or no profitable through the cycle for the industry as a whole. They go through overinvestments and then they get hammered with very poor profitability for a long period of time. There is no barriers to entry. There is a very little moat, what Warren Buffett uh, call a moat. So there is very little protection for the business. So these industries don't look naturally attractive to the you know, uh, typical uh, uh, value investor look. However, these industries offer good opportunities if the investor that manage the, the investor managed to identify an inflection point in the cycle or a specific trend in the industry or the company. Like, for example, a wave of consolidation in a subsector that can make uh, many companies potential targets for acquisition. We, we, we see that in the oil and gas industry, for example, there are many um, small cap upstream producers in, in, in North America uh, that are being targeted by uh, bigger guys that rather than expanding production with exploration and multi-years processes, they just go there and buy for three times cash flow, five times cash flow, you know, these great uh, assets and, and increase, uh, therefore, uh, their reserve and their production. And to be successful uh, in these uh, kind of uh, area and sectors, to borrow Professor Greenwald's uh, words, you want to look for things that are ugly, that are cheap, that are boring, out of fashion, that are small and obscure. You don't want to you know, look at the Teslas of the case. You want to look at something that is discard, you know, not really looked at, but that there is some turning point, tipping point in the industry, and you want to Make sure you get in before the inflection occurs, and then you want to sell them when the broader financial community has started noticing. So that's how we look at it. Great. Boring is great. That's that's an important key point and takeaway. Absolutely. Indeed. So considering that logistics is a highly commoditized sector that covers transportation of finished goods uh, within and across country, what can we learn about the economy from the container business? 
Additionally, what are the key considerations that investors should keep in mind when analyzing this industry? Okay, so looking at, you know, specifically the container business, it, it, it's an interesting one. I mean, I'm, I, I, I have uh, no specific expertise, but we have been looking uh, into the industry and we do have an exposure to the sector in, uh, in enhanced value fund. I'm, I'm just going to tell you how we look at this uh, industry. So we, we see three subsectors, if you want. One is the liners, sort of uh, the mask, uh, the big liners company that uh, move containers from Asia to Europe and US and vice versa. Then you have the ship lessors. So these are the guys that build the ship and lease it to customers uh, for a long period of time. And then you have the container lessors that are few specialized companies that build the containers and lease them to the liners and the, the, the other customers in the market. So if you bear with me with this uh, oversimplification of the market, I want to kind of explore the, uh, and highlight the differences between these three sectors. So the liners are very much exposed to the fluctuation of the rates of moving container. When, you know, COVID hit in 2020, few of our friends that were moving from Singapore back to the US or U Europe were paying like crazy prices for moving a container from Singapore to the West. And that was because there was, you know, constraints in the, in the chain and the price were crazy. The liners were the guys benefiting the most and are the very same guys that now are taking the hit because the rates are coming off a cliff and they are basically taking these uh, lower price with, with very little they can do about. Differently from these guys, there are the uh, ship lessors. There are a few players uh, in the market. And, and basically the difference for these guys is that they lease ships for a you know, three, five, seven years period. So during COVID, they managed to get a lot of orders and they managed to fix a lot of ships for a number of years forward. So the revenues are sort of locked in for another few years. And finally, the container lessers, these are uh, even more uh, the, the subsector is even more cyclical because the ramp up and ramp down of container production is very quick. And therefore, you have a cycle that is much shorter. And again, during the 2020, 2021 and 2022 logistic constraint situation, they managed to get a lot of container on lease at very high prices for a very prolonged period of time. So these guys are the guys that we prefer from a investment perspective because they have five, six years of guaranteed cash flows at return on investment of the single container that is in the you know, 15 to 20% range. And uh, they have as a counterparty, the liners uh, company that uh, are very profitable with a lot of cash on the balance sheet and basically very little uh, risk of default or uh, renegotiating the contract. Given this situation, you would expect the market to, to have behaved differently. But instead, because these 
container lesser and ship lesser company are very like small cap company, very niche companies. With the container market coming off a cliff, they basically came off a lot as well. So they are, now they're trading at below book value and their book is basically yielding 15, 20% for the foreseeable future. So it's a different re- risk reward opportunity depending on which sector you look at. Understood. And uh, as you are located in Singapore, uh, running EVF, the Enhanced Value Fund, so as the world has an increased interest in Singapore to further transfer assets here, uh, we see a lot of family offices uh, opening their, their account here. Could you describe with your insight about Singapore and the region for the shipping and logistic uh, industry? Absolutely. I, I think Singapore is a, a privileged location where the West meet the East, so to speak. It's also a logistic hub where oil, container, gold are stored and traded. It's per se a very interesting location. As you mentioned, there are a lot of capital flowing into, into Singapore. And by the way, I'm from Genoa, uh, Italy, and there are many, they call us Genovese uh, people here in Singapore. Many are traders, brokers, insurance guys because of the heritage of our uh, city, a port city in the Mediterranean. You know, we uh, have also, you know, a a big uh, network of uh, energy people because of the Singapore tension and focus on the energy. I was with McKinsey in consulting before. The networks uh, that are in in Singapore are very useful for both sides of the trade, both getting understanding of, uh, uh, you know, industries and getting, uh, you know, capital and access to capital. So it's quite easy for us at uh, Enhanced Value Fund to tap into these incredible networks uh, for insights uh, uh, mainly. And uh, we see it as a privileged location where to run uh, this investment activity with, we think, uh, uh, good results as well. I have a little question for you, Stefano, if if that's okay. For somebody who has been a long-time growth investor, primarily looking at growth from a technical perspective. And so if somebody wasn't doing a master's program and they wanted to get started, what would you recommend? Ongoing misunderstanding in terms of what is growth and value. So often, you know, even in the morning star boxes, you know, you have growth as opposed to value. You think about, you know, Warren Buffett has invested in uh, Apple and uh, many value investors have invested in uh, Meta, uh, Amazon and this kind of stuff. So the first clarification, I think, to, to, to answer your question is, uh, it's not necessarily that you do value as opposed to growth, uh, but it's more like uh, you value the growth to simplify in a conservative way. So you take a stock like NVIDIA or trading at, you know, 100 plus times sales, and you say, what do I need to believe that, you know, five, 10 years from now, the 100 times sales will have you know, turn into something that makes more sense from a return on capital perspective. I don't follow the stock and I don't know, but it's a quite hard uh, path. Everything needs to get it right to get to a reasonable valuation in, you know, five, 10 years from now to justify today valuation. So for a value investor, I would say is a no-go because it's too risky from a probability gain perspective. If you look at Meta that was trading at $90 a few months ago and was trading at kind of single digit uh, normalized free cash flow, 
Then you say, okay, I'm betting on the Zuckerberg not throwing cash out of the window on the metaverse and kind of this market, you know, coming to a more, they have like 3 billion monthly active users and stuff like that. So that's, it, both are growth stocks, but uh, as a value investor, I can make the case for, for Meta, despite all the noise, uh, much easier. So that, that's one part. The second part, I would start from uh, Warren Buffett uh, letter uh, of annual letter to shareholder going back to, you know, 76, uh, whenever was the, the first one. And they are just uh, a mental framework to kind of understand. And, and again, you will find like, arbitrage opportunity, you will find like many things that where he saw that he invested in silver at some point because the demand supply was stable, currently is investing in oil with Occidental and Chevron. So you'll appreciate that value investing is much more about probabilities, what makes sense rather than a dogmatic, uh, I invest only in one type of, of, of stock. And there is a ton of reading, ton of free material. You know, the MBA is uh, great for the network, uh, but in terms of getting actually your hands on something valuable, you don't really need to pay that high ticket. And uh, yeah. Understood. And uh, thank you. We are reaching now the end of the podcast. So thank you, Stefano, for your, your insight on value investing. I hope it will trigger many uh, discussions on this key trading strategy and expand its fields of, of application. I was your host here, Guillaume Rouchabert from Interactive Broker Singapore. Thanks, Stefano. Thank you. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com.